Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy, incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes, they're going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again, break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get it. I 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And if you haven't listened to the show before, thank you for listening. I, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you explore my other guests that I've had on in the past. Uh, and it's just a full, my show is just a free-formed sort of uh, conversation and less of a stiff, you know, interviewee type thing. So I, I hope you enjoy that. And today I, I speak with a very interesting, fascinating uh, fellow who wrote this psychedelic explorer's guide, uh, Dr. James Fadiman, and he's, he will go into it, but it's more about L- the scientific side of LSD and uh, for problem solving and many of the medical hoodly do awesome things. Let him explain it. Let him explain it because he's better than me. So just that's just coming up in just a few seconds. Uh, I just want to say it's uh, summer. It's really hot in my apartment as I record this. Maybe you can hear the fan in this intro. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I've just been wearing underwear in my apartment for a week, and I'm not giving you that imagery to entice or titillate you because um, 
because I'm I'm in I'm in my mid forties and this I the the body is now just like now I see a picture of myself and I'm just sort of like oh okay like oh that's happening it, you know I'm inevitably I'm just always like any photo I see it's just there's just this gut there's just this thing of gut <laughs> and and it's you know and I'm just like all right well this is that part well we're in this here we are in life. And uh, the face doesn't like you know look as um, you know angular as it was you know and you know yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to be uh, egotistical or anything you know in my early twenties I uh, you know I had sort of an angelic face and uh, now it's just like oh there's that guy who should uh, be wearing too many polo shirts and uh, selling insurance or something yeah it's not the it's it, there's nothing original about my mug anymore. It's just kind of getting that like there's no distinct features anymore. It's just sort of like this pan face sort of thing going on. <laughs> yeah, and my eyes though, my eyes are still beautiful. I just you know I gotta say something positive about myself because I just took shots at myself for the last minute there. So I just you know I got nice eyes. But you know, but I also get like um, I get uh, eye eyelid dandruff. I get I get that now. Uh, it's probably because I'm dehydrated because I opt f to drink uh, beer or vodka over water in these summer days. But, you know, and, you know, summer, heat, bad, bad drinking weather. It really just brings out the crazy in people. You know, you never see a guy in autumn who had too much to drink taking off his shirt in the middle of the and walking down the middle of the expressway. Only in summer. In winter, everybody just kind of keeps it mellow. They have like a nice, you know wine or something bake some bread summer brings out the crazy just brings out the crazy in everybody it's uh the people who love summer i i don't understand you because in la it's just hot the air is still it's brown you guys you know you gotta put gold bond medicated powder on certain areas so as not to, to perspire too much and you can't pick up a girl when you you have your your crotch smells like a medical center you just can't do that um, I can't pick up a girl anyway. I have a, I have a lovely girlfriend, so actually it's good because now I can wear the medicated powder, and it doesn't really it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because uh, she's gonna love me no matter. Maybe not though. Maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe she's gonna maybe she's gonna opt for a guy with no powder. I'm sure there's some guys out there who don't need powder. I'm a powderer. I'm a chafer. I didn't, I, this is what I. This is my conversation I have with you people before I talk to a very brilliant scientist. So, I don't know. Make your judgments about myself. I know I've made plenty. Um, let's get to the conversation with Dr. James Fadiman. He's a fantastic gentleman. Please go to his website. Uh, he's uh, which we throw out there at the end, but check out his reading writings and his readings. I'm sure he reads some fascinating books. <laughs> Hit him up. Ask him what he's reading right now. Uh, enjoy the conversation with Dr. James Fadiman. Okay, well, yeah, the, let me be very clear that um, the thing that people forget, and I, I will probably forget even during this program, is I'm, I'm not very interested in psychedelics. I'm very interested in the experiences they evoke. And those experiences vary depending on 
a lot of variables, but the ones that most people know about are what we call set or your mental attitude and setting, which is the situation. And obviously, if you take the same psychedelic and you're the same person and you take it um, at Yosemite looking at the waterfall or you take it at a Burning Man or you take it at a concert or you take it in a um, a very clean white laboratory where someone is also checking your blood pressure and someone else is taking your heart rate and three other people are just watching you taking notes, you're going to have a different experience. And if you're interested in using it for problem solving, then you need to set up a set and setting as well as a um, what I would call the, the sitter or the guide or the person kind of helping if you need help. Um, to set up so you're most likely to solve scientific problems. And, and so that, that's what gets fascinating is that some of the psychedelics really are tools and that you can use them in a lot of ways. Some of the psychedelics are much more, in a sense, pushy and have their own agenda. That's uh, that's how like how so is there are different forms of LSD that sort of can give you a different experience? Well, it's not really different forms of LSD, but it's different doses. Um, clearly, if you take, um, say, uh, 50 micrograms, which um, we used to call a concert dose or a museum dose, now it's known as a disco hit, <laughs> um, that allows you to pretty much have a good time, uh, get some visual, you know, uh, crinkle or sprinkle or glitter, um, maybe uh, enjoy people in a new way, but not much importance is going to go on, and you don't take it for anything too important. On the other end, if you take, say, 400 mics, um, then you're probably going to want to lie down and be really quiet. And if you um, just play some music and maybe even, you know, put on eye shades and just allow internal experience, it's that's the area in which people have uh, kind of breakthrough mystical experiences that, that often change their whole attitude. Um, um, I've been talking to some students at various universities, and several of them said, you know, I had a major psychedelic experience, and I changed my major. You know, I moved from uh, computer science to botany or from um, psychology to religious studies. And so those are life-changing uh, experiences. And then there's a range in between. And the range that I've explored that, that isn't well-known is the range where creative problem solving is what you're interested in and that's that's at around 100 mics so it isn't different forms of lsd but it is very much dosage dependent is uh and forgive me for not knowing but is 100 is that in a lot compared to say the disco hit or is it a, a significantly no. less no it's a, a disco hit is say 50 micrograms and a, a creative problem solving around 100 seems to work for most people, um, less for people who either have a lot of experience or feel they're very sensitive, but it's in that range. It's, it's deliberately designed so that you still are in your consciousness. You still know that it's you. You're not, um, you haven't um, let go of your identity. You haven't kind of blended with the universe or... Uh, become one with the 10,000 things or be caught up in in beautiful um, kind of fractal patterns um, or that you lose track of time. Uh, Stan Groff had a very early experience where he 
said he left the laboratory and then he was flying over the building and then he was flying over Prague and then he was flying over the whole earth and then he went right out into being identified with the whole universe. Um, that's real. You don't solve scientific problems from that space. No, <laughs> uh, I was just like, while you were saying that, I was curious, it's like, do, do certain, like, say if a guy like Dick Cheney took that much LSD, is he still going right. to, is it, I mean, is there He's still going to be Dick Cheney? Right? That's, That's exactly, a good question. Because <laughs> I know, like, I already had certain, you know, philosophical beliefs and leftist leanings when I was chomping on a lot of LSD and mushrooms in my younger day, and Right. But I do think it did definitely push me in certain directions and make me find certain things less important, you know, materialism and, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> but I, I, I've i always wondered that. It's like, does everybody sort of open up? Or if you're that closed off of a human being, maybe, maybe not. Well, this is, you know, having not been allowed to do research for 40 years, it's hard to answer some of those questions in ways that, people who like science would like. But if you kind of listen to people a lot, and I've been asking for the last year or two, hundreds and hundreds of students. And what I've found um, is, particularly in say, undergraduates, is many of them say, you know, I, I started taking it for curiosity and for fun. And gradually I realized I'm much more interested in, in self-development and self-exploration. And then what I would get is people would say, you know, I'm less neurotic. I'm, uh, it's easier for me to be with people. I have better relationships. Uh, I like nature more. It's kind of a gradual shift, not uh, not exactly liberal conservative, um, but maybe towards real conservative, where we're talking about conserving what is is wonderful and beautiful. Um, and so, that, say someone like Dick Cheney, whose whose ideas are quite fixed. Um, would would probably on a low dose of psychedelics merely be puzzled and confused and and uh, maybe amused maybe upset and on a very high dose would need would need a guide to to help him navigate spaces that he was sure didn't exist uh, but again um, I wouldn't you know if someone said how about slipping it to Dick Cheney the answer is absolutely not because <laughs> it is about set and setting it is about making things safe for people. Uh, because if it's unsafe, people will be able to hang on and may have a terrible time, may have what we call, or we used to call a bad trip, which we now call a challenging trip, which is um, it's something you still can learn from. You'd sure rather not. You'd rather learn some other way. Yeah. Is, it, is there ways, say, if someone was in one of those uh, challenging trips, is there ways to get out of those? Because I know m most people don't, have guides I don't even know I mean right. there's still a lot of people that do guide these days there are there are guides these days there's there's um, people literally who earn a living being underground guides as kind of therapists and spiritual guides but they're also people who help each other and um, the last book I did called the psychedelic explorers guide um, the first few chapters are all about how to be a good guide how to help friends or how to be a good, what I call a journey or a voyager, uh, and how to be helped. And the answer is that challenging trips can very, very, very often be turned around. And there's um, people 
who who go to big um, concerts and weekend events and uh, Burning Man in particular, where there's a whole staff at Burning Man uh, for people who are having bad trips. And the rule of thumb there, which I really admire, is they say we never bring anyone down. We just bring them through. And what that means is you take someone who's torn up in some frightened way, you know, they may think their arms are falling off, they may think they've just died. They also may have been um, just had a very bad sexual experience with someone who drugged them. They may have been dosed. So they're really in, in bad shape. And you just start by offering them comfort and safety and with water. Just let them know they're in a safe space now, that there's someone that knows what's going on, and it's okay for them to have experiences. They're not going to be, you know, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to die. They're not going to go crazy. Um, and people calm down and begin to really do some really marvelous, powerful, useful therapeutic experiences. Do you do you think that it is it definitely can help? Say, if I'm too neurotic, which I am, is there ways to work through those kind of? Oh yeah, yeah. That's another. You know, that's all another area. Kind of psycho. There's two ways: psychotherapeutic use, which is a, a kind of a higher dose. If if we just talk LSD, which is the one I know best, and those of you who are listening kind of know equivalents in in other substances. Um, but there's a level in which you, you directly look at what we might call a neurotic pattern or a phobia or a trauma, and you can deal with it in ways that it's that, that what psychotherapists say, it's like doing a year or two of therapy in a couple of hours. So because there's, a, there's one central notion, which is the core of you is just fine. Your essential nature is just fine. It was there at birth, and it's there now. And uh, however, you have covered it over and boxed it in and done things to it, like all of us have, because we had parents and we were children, uh, where things didn't work quite as well as they should have. And so you developed some scar tissue, and you developed some protections, and you developed some habits, um, and you became what you would say would have some neuroses, or you may have uh, some really heavy difficulties. And, but all of those aren't your essential nature. And so what happens in the psychotherapeutic use is uh, you try and get back to be in touch with your essential nature, and then your essential nature and, and you and the person you're working with, all of you then look at the problem. You know, say it's a, a, a phobia about, um, I don't know, heights or elevators, very popular. <laughs> and you see, you see that right now in, in this, very healthy state that there's nothing about elevators. It's about fear. It's about being abandoned or about being enclosed or whatever it is. And you can see the difference between the, the neurotic um, kind of structure, which has a beginning and where you are now in your life, where the neurotic structure was probably useful as a child or as a, a high school student, but it isn't useful anymore. And you can let it go just as, a lot of things we thought were absolutely so, say, in high school. And then we had new experiences, and we just let the old idea drop. And uh, one example that usually people can easily identify with is can you remember a time uh, when you were just entering puberty when someone told you that people put their tongues into each other's mouths 
And you thought at the time that was the most disgusting, yucky thing you could imagine. And now you think that having someone's tongue in your mouth might not be as yucky as it used to be. Okay? <laughs> I've had some pretty good ones in my mouth, to be quite honest. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, I hope so. <laughs> but but what you did is you took that, that early pattern, which was very strong and quite emotional, and you said consciously, that was based on misinformation. <laughs> or that was based on a physiology of pre-puberty that is different than after you hit puberty. And so you say, okay, that was a pattern that would restrict my behavior, say, with with you know, with someone else. And now you say, I have a new freer pattern, which includes more, and that's healthier. And so in a sense, a lot of psychotherapies, you know, really have that same model, which is something, you're hanging on to something which isn't working. Okay? Let's say, um, uh, I was a counselor for a while at, at Stanford, so my, my Stanford students had a, a usual pattern, which is, I'm really not that good in relationships. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I would say to them, you know, is that, do you wish to take that into your future or would you like to change the pattern? And since they were in therapy with me, they all wanted to change the pattern. And so we worked on it. You know, but we didn't say, okay, you're bad at relationships. That's the way it goes. You know, it isn't like someone comes in and says, I'm 5'10 and I want to play, you know, a professional basketball. I came in for therapy because I want to be taller. You say, well, that's something really we can't work with, but but we can work with that you want to excel in a sport, and maybe basketball isn't the best choice. Maybe that was something you had as a kid that, you know, everybody did, but maybe there are other sports that you would like more and that your body type would be better for. It's, an, it, it's interesting that you said that because it's like – when you said when we were a child, we could just let go of certain things, and, and over time we hold. It's we're almost told a lot of times that we we can't change. Exactly, and we can't change, and it's never for our our virtues. They never say you're just going to be stuck being good or smart or kind. They never say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's and you you talk about. Um, deeper levels of consciousness which can be accessed through dosing and whatnot and which i mean is it i guess those levels of consciousness already exist right it's just a matter of us sort of yeah working to get in there well it's again how do you get to an altered state of consciousness and uh, those of us who lecture about psychedelics, we always do this little dance about all the other ways. And we talk about chanting and dancing and drumming and hypnosis and fasting and uh, on deep sea diving and all the ways that people talk about that, that do alter states. Uh, but really what we're saying is we're not really working with those. Those are fine. We're working with ones that are actually much more uh, controllable and take a lot less preparation and effort and uh, seem to be valuable in their own right. And uh, I've spent some time recently with a wonderful Zen teacher, and we've done a a set of public events that we call Buddhism and Psychedelics, where we talk to one another about were psychedelics useful in a spiritual practice and a spiritual system such as Buddhism. 
and uh, there's a bunch of YouTubes out there where it looks to us and to our audience who was there as if for many people they have successfully blended a spiritual practice, say Buddhism, with psychedelic use. And others who say, no, it isn't useful, and the answer to those people is then don't use it. And the answer to people for whom it is useful is use it carefully. Yeah, I was watching you speak uh, on a video and I, when you were talking, and I thought this a lot of the things you were saying, I was like, oh man, this is so intermingled with the Buddhist way of of thinking. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's, so now I need to meditate and, like if you do, if you meditate and, and does, do you, have, I've never done that, but I mean, does that, have you seen that? Assist? I mean, if you add meditation to a psychedelic experience? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, basically, remember when you're meditating, you're trying to still your mind so that deeper uh, levels of mind can be visible. The image in the Buddhist world is, you know, making the ripples on the pond, you know, go down until you can see the bottom of the pond through the clear water. And what what psychedelics do, again, psychedelic experiences do in a safe, supportive setting where you feel safe and trusted and, and you may or may not have a guide, you can allow your mind to show you parts of itself which it normally doesn't. And those parts seem to be, for most people, extraordinarily positive, uh, usually uh, reported as, you know, exquisitely beautiful in a, in a sense of... Um, gorgeous shapes, colors, forms, etc. And then the question of what your thoughts are is they seem to be of a different order um, and that you feel good about those thoughts and they may include insights into areas that you didn't think you knew anything about, such as um, is it possible that you existed in some form before your birth? Now, again, Buddhism talks about it. Most religions talk about it. Um, but here's a chance where people have to see what it's like to experience that possibility. And their mind will take them in places that they didn't expect to go. Um, a lot of people I know have had an experience which they would call recapitulating evolution, where they have the feeling of having been um, literally some very primitive creature like a slime mold, which is a single-celled animal, and kind of recapitulating um, evolution and becoming fish and birds and so forth um, as if their cells retain the memory of all those evolutionary changes. And is it real? You know, uh, it, the experience is as real as you feel it to be. Do they really recapitulate evolution? I don't know. But they have a profound sense of feeling a continuity of their own body, mind, spirit with the rest of the natural world. And that seems to be one of the end places that people come to in a lot of different ways with psychedelics. It's a feeling of being in much greater um, reconnection with the natural world. Because if you, you know, if you want to say, well, what's wrong with civilization? And the answer is mainly that it's lost that connection so that it makes mistakes which harm nature, and nature in, is, happens to be where we live. You know, it's a little bit like somebody who um, cooks wonderful food, and then just before they serve it, they just dump a little dirt in it. And you say, well, why did you do that for? And they say, well, 
Um, I wasn't really paying much attention to the total soup, but I kind of liked the color of the mug. So you're missing the point, which is you made something beautiful that fits into a human body and into a stomach, but you've made it unpalatable. And if you look around the world, there are a lot of things that we do that make nature, you know, that make the world we live in reject us. And when you when nature rejects you, it's very hard. You know, climate change really is the earth saying, boy, you are really making the world uninhabitable. I may have to eliminate a few billion of you to get things back into order. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that it seems like the more one, I don't know, as I grow older and uh, become, I would say, more of a centered person, the more I've become... Uh, sort of interested in I used to be very urban and just like now yeah, and yeah. now I'm like I like I notice myself missing like I have to go and go out to the country and stuff it like I start noticing that I, I get crazy in the head if I don't do it exactly what you're what you are re reconnecting to is what was true for every human being on the planet up to a few thousand years ago which is they lived next to nature and when you live next to nature, you get that you don't actually live next to nature, you actually live in it because you're one of the species that's in the forest. And that the forest, you know, adjusts to you just like it adjusts to, say, the, uh, you know, the mice and the gophers and the mushrooms. You know, I was reading a wonderful book called American Canopy that pointed out when we were settling America and starting to drive the Indians out, and we had these wonderful forest that you could just walk for days um, because there was very little undergrowth and it turns out that's because for thousands of years the Native Americans um, the indigenous people had been working with the forest to make it a better place for them and as soon as we drove them out then suddenly these wonderful um, situations began to clog with all kinds of problem plants um, and we then would clear it all out, and presto, we managed to bring malaria into the American South. So get mess, breaking, breaking the, the bond between human beings and all other species hasn't worked. And what you're saying in your own development is you're getting back to what we would call minimum normal. <laughs> yes, my, my normal is very minimal, that is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you as a as a writer, and uh, you've because you've written uh, several books, and uh, yeah, the the as the creative process and your LSD experience, do you f do you find that there is a connection between those two that that has helped you in your writing? Oh, enormous. Yeah, enormously. When I before I started using LSD, I come from a very intellectual bookish family um, most of my relatives have written books and I was very much a word person you know I used to admire my father because he would play Scrabble without a dictionary that kind of a thing and I realized that I had a very very minimal kind of visual way of um, imagining things I imagined things literally written out and when I first began to use psychedelics I began to have a much richer visual life and, of course, the difference between staring at a word and staring at an image is there's about a thousand times more information in any image. I mean, imagine the word redwood tree as letters. 
And then imagine looking up the, a redwood tree until, of course, you're almost falling over because you have to look up so much. And you think, whoa, that's not at all the same experience as the word. <laughs> so, so that began to help me um, expand my own way of thinking and ways of thinking. And very often when I work with creative problem solvers and people who are maybe creative in half a dozen fields, they think first in images. And then they try and translate that down into formulas or words or compounds. Um, it's wonderful hanging around with organic chemists who are forever drawing lovely little diagrams to each other um, about molecules. And they say, well, what if we put a bromine on the end of this? And they draw a little drawing, and they hand it over, and the other guy says, well, let's do this. And they hand a little drawing back. And it's, it's a, another language, much more visual, much more three-dimensional. Um, and again, as I've worked with scientists, very, very few say their first way of getting ideas is with words. So that for myself, it's been enormously helpful and... The other thing, of course, I've learned is that the other end of it is words evoke images. And you can actually evoke physiological reactions in people by saying words. For instance, let me, let me ask you to imagine that you are now holding half a lemon and that you put it to your lips and that you suck and there's the, the taste of a sour lemon. Yeah, you're, my, my glands got that, uh, that weird tingly thing. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And what's that from? What's, well, it's that you're able to take a symbolic, you know, my, my words, my sounds, but as soon as you take them in, they acquire not just, you know, not just visual, but tactile and gustatory and so forth. And that's, in a sense, a remarkable form of magic. And I'm just reading a, the biography or the dual biography of Dennis McKenna, and Terence McKenna, and they're pointing out that that a lot of the what we would call magic um, language is one of the great magics. That I look at some black and white squiggles on a page, and suddenly I'm tearing up. I'm really moved by what those black and white squiggles have translated into. Now that sure sounds like magic to me. <laughs> That's a, a a great way of looking at it. Now, it, yeah, cause I used to know a director. I don't know if you're familiar with who Del Close is. He ran around with. Mm -hmm. Oh, do you know Del Close or who he is? Just I know who he is. Yeah. Oh, because uh, I came from Second City, where he he as well did, and he would when he directed shows, he would often eat mushrooms or take acid somewhere in the process to sure. see what he was missing. Uh, is that a viable sort of, do you think that's still a viable way of creating or? Well, it's, it's, but he's, what he's saying is I want to try looking at the same production through different sets of eyes and I'll go into an altered state, particularly one like if he's using mushrooms where he's got a lot of visual uh, acuity. And so he's going to see things literally differently or more and see textures and see levels and layers, and that will help him understand what he's doing. Let me give you a, a real-life problem-solving parallel. There was an architect in Canada, and he was asked to design a new mental hospital. 
And he said, okay, and then this was when psychedelics were legal. So he took LSD and went to a mental hospital and wandered around all day with the patients. And what he found, for example, and now let me give you something in your imagination. Imagine a long uh, hallway in a, in a hospital, just not too well lit, and it's just very long, and there's just these closed doors, and way at the end there might be a little teeny point of light where there's an exit door. And imagine that feeling of being frightened of getting caught in that tunnel. Okay? And he looked at that and he thought, wow, I don't want to design a mental hospital that has scary architectural elements. And so he designed a hospital that was much more mental patient friendly and mental patient safe and won a bunch of awards and other hospitals were based on it and so forth. Well, as what he indicated is he just didn't quite know what a mental hospital should be, so he decided to see what it looked like, in a sense, from the ultimate client, which is the mental patient. And it makes a you know, very sensible use of, let's get into an altered state that's appropriate for the situation. Now, one of our scientists um, came up as he was working on a, on a, he was actually working on something called photoluminescence, but that deals with photons. And then he said to himself, what is a photon? And, you know, he knew the definition because that was his area of expertise. But he said, well, what can I, how can I envision a photon? And he came up with a very, very simple model. And he thought, oh, that is so simple, it can't possibly be right. And then he started to do thought experiments where he would put this photon model through various um, difficulties, uh, electric fields, magnetic fields, uh, whatever. And he kept finding that his simple model actually kept working. And he got very excited and spent a few hours on it and eventually did a paper on a, a theory of the photon. Uh, because he, but all the experiments were not done with formulas. He just watched his photon, so to speak, go through its um, its repertoire. And so your friend who was doing the theory piece was basically saying, "Let's look at it in different ways." The 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 earliest uh, we have of people working that with altered states uh, is a wonderful book by uh, Herodotus, who was looking at the Persian Greek wars. And it turned out that the, the, the generals, the Persian generals who were winning for, till the end of this historical cycle, they would make a war plan. They'd sit around, you know, smart military guys, and they'd lay out the war plan, and then they'd all get drunk. And they'd look at the war plan again. And they would see if it worked drunk and it worked sober, they figured it was pretty good. <laughs> So early, early working with altered states. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, in a weird way, it's innate to human nature. I mean, I, I was looking at yeah. some kids spinning around at a party a while back, and I was like, oh, they're getting high. <laughs> it's like... Right. Right. Well, small children easily go in and out of, like, these visual trips. You know, you listen to a couple of children, they say, I'm an astronaut. And the other one says, I'm a spaceship and I'm going to fire on you. And the astronaut says, oh, no, you're not, because I have an invisible shield. And then a couple of minutes later, 
they say, let's go in and see if we can get a cookie. (laughs) (laughs) So they're very used to using full imagery to, to look at situations and to, you know, to, to actually sense them and feel them. Why do you think people have such a hesitance with when it comes to things like this? I mean, even to the level of our government who eventually outlawed these sort of experiments. Well, our government outlawed psychedelics out of a kind of the same desperation that they tried prohibition, that they tried outlawing marijuana, that they tried outlawing miscegenation, which is marriage between, quote, races, and so forth, which is government likes things to be the way it stable, kind of they'd like tomorrow to look a lot like today. And in the 60s, there were two different concerns the government had. One was that all the young people who they would like to send to Vietnam and have them shoot at other people were more and more saying that they saw this to be a very bad way to treat them, the young people, and two, the people they were shooting at. So the idea that war was unpopular rather than this swell patriotic thing, that was really hard for the government. And on the other hand, here are all these young people who were taking psychedelics and saying, we know exactly why all these other young people aren't wanting to go fight. In fact, we don't think that the institutions that they're supposed to be saving, the banks, the universities, the factories... We don't think those are very good for people either. And imagine you're a, you know, you're a banker and let's say you're a really nice banker and you come home and there's your kid home from the summer from Berkeley or Oberland or University of Alabama and he says, "Dad, I think everything you stand for sucks." And father says, "Where would you get those ideas?" He says, "Well, man, we were dropping acid and I just looked at your life." And it was just made me sick. And your father said, what's acid? <laughs> I don't think you should have it. <laughs> and, and I can sympathize with a father. You know, imagine you're, you know, you're trying to run an army and these young people look up at you and they say, I don't think killing other people is a good idea. And they say, this is the military. <laughs> and they say, yeah, well, let's, let's not have one. So, so the government then said, what can we do to deal with the fact that people don't want to go to war? They don't even want to go to school. They don't want to work in the factories. They don't want to, um, they don't want to continue to segregate in schools. They actually want to have a lot of sex with each other, like we, the older generation, never had a chance to do. Let's stop something. And so they outlawed psychedelics. And the use of psychedelics soared. Yeah, I mean, everybody I know has has done it. Do you? Yeah. Do you feel? Well, like- let me give you let me give you a figure that just kind of I I love it because it's a government figure. Since LSD was made illegal, and I'm only talking about LSD. Twenty four million Americans have taken LSD, and those were not the least educated. So when I'm with any group of engineers or judges or, you know, biophysicists, and I say, hi, I've written a book on psychedelics, 
there's this pause, and then people start telling me their stories. Because like you, most of the interesting people you know have at some point in their life explored their consciousness, just like many of the people you know, say, have gone to India or to Mexico or uh, mountain climbing. They've done things to enlarge their worlds. Do you, do you think with LSD and being taken out of, of scientific studies, and do you think that has hindered the progress of, do you think we could have been a lot further along if this has not, would it not have oh, happened? Enormously. I mean, one of the things that, uh, the central building block of modern neurochemistry is called serotonin. Serotonin was discovered because people noticed that LSD happened to affect this thing in the brain that they had no idea first was there or what it did. So LSD indirectly is responsible for the whole excitement in brain chemistry. And if we look at something like um, post-traumatic stress disorder, there's incredibly good evidence that LSD, that in this case, MDMA, let's change drugs briefly, um, assisted psychotherapy can turn around post-traumatic stress disorder. We also know that a large percentage of people who have it and do conventional therapies of all sorts, um, it's a total failure. So we've got literally hundreds of thousands of people who could be helped if the government felt that helping people was more important than a regulation that was passed many years ago by people who really didn't have much knowledge and have and the research necessary to to demonstrate the value of these things has been basically thwarted has there been any oh, yeah have they started thinking maybe they made a mistake or is it oh oh yeah yeah i mean and, What's happening in a very nice way is the, the, what I just said about post-traumatic stress disorder and MDMA, a group called MAPS, M-A-P-S, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been funding um, some research studies exactly in this area. And the first study um, was what was, the people in it were what were called treatment resistance. Treatment resistance, it's a, it's a term the medical profession uses which sounds like you're ultimately blaming the patient for not getting better. But really what it's saying is everything we knew to do, we did to you and it didn't help. So these were kind of hardcore failures of the modern treatment system. And of the first group, 80% of them were so much improved with a combination of a couple of sessions of MDMA and assisted psychotherapy in between to help integrate. And integration is really important for this kind of thing. They basically couldn't get back in the study because they had so few symptoms. And most of them, you know, went back to having healthy families and normal jobs. These were people who were really in deep and serious trouble. Um, just another study. Um, turns out one of the hardest addictions to get rid of is smoking. Um, and... A recent study with psilocybin was uh, chronic smokers. And this was like, I think to get in, you had to have something like 20 years of two packs a day. So we're talking serious smokers. 
And the only other criteria was, aside from being in moderately good mental health, was that you wanted to quit and that you weren't able to. Well, of the first group of, of people who went through this, again, psilocybin plus integration, um, 95% of them stopped smoking totally. And um, I was asking about, wait a moment, why, what happened to the other person? Because it was a small enough sample. And they said, well, our criteria was that we didn't call it a, a success unless it was 100% ending of smoking. But we will admit that this one person went from two packs a day to five cigarettes a month. But we're not, we're not calling that a success. That's pretty so, amazing. Yeah, and if we, you know, if we look at smoking, and I don't know, the usual figure for the United States alone is 400,000 deaths a year. And a lot of people who smoke would rather not. But it's an incredibly um, difficult addiction. So here's another area where psychedelics simply are um, the treatment of choice if one was operating in a world based on scientific evidence. And let me just give you a third area because it's quite different. This is people who are dying. This is people with, say, stage 4 cancer, and there isn't a stage 5. And they're very upset and anxious and unhappy. And you may think, well, why wouldn't they be? And the answer is many people who have a terminal illness, and in some sense we certainly all do, they take it in much better grace. But these people were not only unhappy, but when they're unhappy, their family's unhappy, and the medical staff treats them as unhappy, and it's generally awful. Well, they were in a safe, supportive setting with a guide and Again, almost all of them came out of it saying, you know, I'm really sorry I'm dying, but I'm going to love every day that's left. And I've, I've watched some videotapes of them talking. And, you know, you do cry. And then there's you pull back and, and one, here's this woman who had been just paralyzed with fear and anxiety, and she's planting a flower garden with her granddaughter and talking about how wonderful it is to be able to do that. So we can improve the thing that Americans fear maybe the most, which is, uh, again, this is a nice use, these readily available substances. So I'm very um, because those 24 million Americans are not frightened uh, by the, the government, kind of government um, propaganda, which was written again years ago. And just as you said, you know, most of your friends, if you said to your friends, well, aren't psychedelics terrible for you and, and shouldn't they be banned? Your friends just all laugh and say, um, you know, if we, if, we base, if we base anything on experience, then we come up with different conclusions. It's, it, it's interesting because I've never come across anybody who's experimented with it and has been like, oh, man, I just – I'm." I'm a worse person. <laughs> it's like, it's well, I actually I have, but I kind of I ask for it, and and there are people who 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 have been dam damaged, and the answer is they weren't damaged by psychedelics, but they were damaged by having a terrible psychedelic experience in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I remember someone telling me he and his friend in high school, and they were 16, 17, they went to a park, and they, they were turned on, and they were lying around, and for some reason, police appeared. And he said that 
he actually fought the police off, and it took like six people to hold him down. But he said his friend had a harder time and somehow got beaten up. And his friend got hospitalized, and his friend never quite recovered from the combination of trauma and you know, maltreatment and, again, ignorant medical treatment on the other end. And he said his friend, who'd been a real star in high school, really never recovered, and his life was kind of a shabby failure. So um, these are these you know these are the most powerful substances mentally you know mental substances we've ever discovered, and the idea that you can use them without any risk is nonsense. You can minimize risk pretty easily, um, and that's partly why people like me go around saying, um, why don't you, if you're going to do these things, why don't you do it safely? Why don't you do it smartly? Why don't you do it to maximize the psychological and spiritual benefit? And so that's kind of my uh, my mantra. And, and people have accused me of being kind of the right winger of psychedelics because I say, if you really want to get the maximum benefit, you'll use a guide. Um, I have friends who climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, and basically it's not a hard climb in terms of you know uh, angle of ascent. But the last day or so, you are dealing usually with altitude sickness. And I remember talking to one of my relatives, a woman who at age, um, I think it was, she was in her, her 40s, 50s, who got up to that last day and felt, I can't go on. And her guide, uh, an African who did this for a living, said to her, yes, you can, and I help you. And so she said, okay. And she made it to the top with the help of her guide. Um, and she's been eternally grateful that he asked her to, you know, transcend her upset and her illness and do that extra that was possible, but only with the help of a guide. So that's kind of my right wing side, which is guides help you uh, make the last part of the ascent where you're sure you can't do it on your own. And you're right. You can't do it on your own because you don't know your way. Now, how does one f find a guide these days without uh, I know without legally implicating anybody <laughs> it's like, but like how well, how would well, I Craig's do that list, Craigslist is not the answer okay yeah that seems Craigslist is a bad idea for almost anything except yeah. an apartment and a job <laughs> <laughs> exactly so the, the answer is, is it's a hard one because um, we are dealing with the fact that, that these are not legal. We're dealing, in a sense, the image is like, more like underground Christians. You know, where can I find a Christian in, in Rome during a very anti-Christian period? And the answer is, well, there's some live in the catacombs, and maybe if you ask this guy. So I can't say. Um, you know, sometimes I can. Sometimes I've met someone who says, this is what I do, and I feel good about them. But on the whole, uh, the reason I wrote the book is so that people could learn to guide each other. And most people have a good feeling for that. And it's nice if you're highly trained. But basically, if you love the person you're with, and you're not taking psychedelics yourself, I think that's probably the big shift, is a guide, you know, we have, we have what's called a designated driver. Everybody else can get drunk. And the designated driver says, I'm not going to get drunk because I drive everybody home. And... You don't say to the designated driver, why don't you just have a few drinks and join us? Because I know it's hard for you not to be drinking. And that's not the right thing to do. So it turns out that what, what guides know how to do is kind of how to be with people, even though they're not, uh, they're not taking the drug themselves. 
And some guides I know will take a little tiny amount. And some shamans I know in the indigenous world also do that. They'll take a small dose of, of something and they're giving larger doses to the people they're working with. And sometimes the other way around is they'll give nothing to the people they're working with and they'll take the dose and um, do all the work from the inside. So there's lots of ways to work if you know what you're doing and there's lots of ways to make mistakes when you don't. Is it equally as difficult to find a psychotherapist that would assist you with dosing? Because frankly, that interests um, me. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, it actually depends on the part of the country you're in. Uh, I think the West Coast and the East Coast tend to have more people who, who will admit that they know something. And I'm working with, with graduate students in psychology at Sophia University, which I'm, I'm part of. And what we've told our clinical graduate students is you need to know how to work with people who are either are having a psychedelic experience that's kind of almost a first aid and in trouble, or who had it and want help in figuring out what on earth went on and what's going on and what can I do with it. And without that knowledge, you're simply not a full-fledged contemporary psychotherapist. But again, most of the psychotherapists I know, when you lean on them a little, they'll talk about their own psychedelic experiences, often when they were younger. Um, and whether they'll help someone who wants to dose, probably not, because again, they're legal liability. But I know several therapists who said to me, you know, I can't um, give anyone psychedelics, obviously. But if one of my clients calls me up on a Saturday morning and said, I've just taken a tab of acid, and I'd like your help. And the reason it was on Saturday is because I told them that if they did it on Saturday, I'd be available. And that's all legal and fair. So one, one, you know, one gets around the laws in ways that you might find helpful. And it depends on, you know, on your own kind of ethical and moral standards of what's more important, helping your clients or, um, being strictly the letter of a law that, that isn't as useful as it should be. And you certainly don't want your client to get in trouble. Right. Do you, do you warn against, say, I'm like, oh, I, I want to, like, if I was like, I want to work through my neuroses or a problem with something I had with writing, do you warn against someone being just, I'm going to dose and work on this by myself? Is that? Well, it's not warning. It's just that it's, the problem is you're working on it yourself and then, something happens let's say jehovah's witnesses come to the door <laughs> that's that's okay. gonna be a bad trip <laughs> right well it could be difficult because you're in one kind of space and you look out at them and and they're in a very different space and it's confusing to you because they really care about the space they're in and you may get confused kind of in a sense it's like um it's like if you're taking a walk through the forest and you come to a trailhead, and there's three trails, and none are marked. And you look at your map, and it doesn't mention it. And you turn to the, the guy next to you who is a ranger in that park, and he says, oh, yeah, we should have marked that. If we go to the right, we're going to the waterfall, which is what you intended. That's, that's really helpful. So that to work on these, to, to work for problem solving on your own, it doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's sure easier if somebody is, is the designated driver, the ground control, somebody that, that makes you lunch. Um, 
your your girlfriend or boyfriend that that when you say you know I'm I'm feeling a little frightened they give you a hug, all that's really helpful, and it isn't it isn't like a big deal. It doesn't take away from the purity of your experience. You know I know people who say well I can only take psychedelics alone. And I say well why? And they say uh, because that's how I've done it. And I say well I know people who have what they would call sexual pleasure alone. And they say it's okay, but there's a whole other way that's, that's a little more complicated, but maybe might be more valuable. Um, and just to, to wrap up, uh, I want to thank you, first off, very much for taking the time out to speak with me. Um, but w where are uh, various places people can find your, your works? I know you have jamesfadiman.com. Yeah, uh, jamesfadiman.com is kind of where I pile everything up. And what I've done since I tend to talk on different aspects, because as I say to my friends when I'm at a conference and they say, gee, that was an interesting speech. And I say, well, the difference is you do actual work and I talk about your work. So I have to be better at talking. <laughs> and so I have a lot of talks on various topics um, available through my website, jamesfadiman.com. Or if you go to YouTube you know, and plug in, uh, Fadiman. You'll get some other Fadimans, but mainly they're, mainly it's my stuff by now. And I'm on the MAPS website because I've done a number of things with and for them. Um, you know, these days it's not hard. Yeah. Um, and those, those, uh, chats you mentioned with the, with the Buddhist monk are also on YouTube, right? Cause uh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's Buddhism. That's probably one of the more interesting ones because the, my friend Kyoko, Kokyo, who is the, the Buddhist priest who we're, we're both talking together, he is crystal clear about the implications of psychedelics and Buddhism. And before he was a Buddhist monk, and he's been a monk for 18 years, uh, among other things, he was a follower of the dead. You know, so he actually knows both sides of the street. And he's very wise, and uh, I just am... Uh, just honored when I get to, you know, we, we got to talk together and it went so well. And it actually became the most popular um, YouTube, the most popular video on the MAPS website, much to everyone's amazement. Uh, so there's a real, real hunger for people to integrate their spiritual experiences with their psychedelic experiences. And that's one of the areas which I think real progress is being made. It's great. Oh, also, while, while we're pitching me, uh, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, um, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys, it's a book and it's an e-book, uh, covers a lot of what we've been talking about, plus a whole lot of other areas, the most interesting probably being microdosing. And microdosing, since we're close to the end here, let me just define it. Microdosing is taking a psychedelic so little of it that there's no perceptual shift. The rocks don't even glisten a little. And people tend to be using these microdoses with their normal day. And they indicate on the whole, this is research I'm doing, and asking people to send me their reports of what they're doing with it. Um, they said to say, you know, I just had a better day. I got a, it was a little, uh, a little worked a little faster. I could uh, do the hard stuff a little longer. I ate a slightly healthier lunch. I was nice to someone I wouldn't normally be nice to. Just very mild stuff. 
And it turns out uh, from Albert Hoffman, who, who, who created LSD, he said this very, very low-dose area, micro-dose area, which is about a tenth of a regular dose, like 10 micrograms, um, is an under-researched area. And it seems to cover the same parts of the mind that, say, Adderall and some of the other speed, like, um, quote, cognitive enhancers do, but without any of the amphetamine effects, without any of the side effects. Um, and it covers more, kind of more chakras, more parts of the human frame. So that's that's where I'm most interested in the moment, is in stuff that doesn't have any of these spiritual and exciting uh, aspects, but is very ordinary and very usual and just makes life seem to work better. What What is the amount that uh, for micro-dosing? Well, uh, about a tenth of what everyone would think would be a regular dose of something. Uh, so if one was taking, say, MDA, and that's a, a similar to MDMA, which is similar to ecstasy, um, say 200 milligrams is a serious dose of MDA. Well, 20 would be a microdose. Um, 100 micrograms of LSD um, is a serious dose, enough for serious problem solving, and for much beyond the concert dose, about 10 micrograms. The, the rule of thumb is if you... If you notice that you're taking something perceptually, then that's a little too much. Yeah, I, I, But if you just are feeling pretty good and have a little more energy and you can stay up a little longer um, and you're a little nicer, that's probably the right size dose. I want to do that. <laughs> I, I, know, I know some people who uh, do that with mushrooms now and again where they're just exactly. a little... Exactly. And, and I do have those in the freezer. I hope the police are listening. <laughs> yeah, well, well, for example, talk to an artist model. And when you're an artist model, you basically have to have very long, still poses, usually while you're nude. And she said, you know, one week I had a, someone gave me some mushrooms, and instead of just tripping, I took a little bit of them every day. And she said, my work just went better. It was simply easier to hold the long poses. And I felt better. I felt less tired and less stressed at the end of the day. So that's what interests me. And I've also been finding people who've been microdosing for depression. Uh, some people who are trying it with Parkinson's. With it doesn't seem to do so far so much for the Parkinson's, but the underlying um, sadness that Parkinson's patients have, they say, alleviates. People have been looking at it for allergies. Um, there's also some work with what are called ice pick headaches. Ice pick headaches are headaches that are incredibly painful, like an ice pick into your head, but very short, like under a minute. They're a version of what are called cluster headaches, which are these same level of horrible, horrible pain, but cluster headaches go on for 20, 30, 40 minutes per headache. And so both of those areas are ones that are uh, that psychedelics work on. Um, and as I say, I have preliminary data that the microdose works for these this ice headache, and that's actually uh, very exciting and very unpublished at this point. It seems, I mean, maybe it's, I know some people, it seems more difficult to find uh, acid these days, or at least... Probably. <laughs> well, well, probably that may be an age problem, because I find with my, when I talk to undergraduates, they never complain about the problem of finding anything. And what I've said to people when people come up after a talk and they'd say, that was a really very interesting talk, and then 
covertly or overtly, they say, can I find, you know, tell me where I can get something. And they usually say, because I haven't had it for many years. And I say, well, do you know any people in college or in high school? Because those, those are two of the three places in the culture where you can get most drugs. It's kind of scary, but that's true. <laughs> the, 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 the third place, is, to me, is the most interesting. The third place where you can get almost any drug is prison. And that fascinates me because prison is supposed to be, you know, as restrictive an environment as we're ever able to create. And yet what I find when I talk to people who've done time is every drug is available in prison. Now, psychedelics aren't the most coveted drugs in prison, but they're available. So it's curious. And so whether there is LSD around or MDA or psilocybin, um, more and more of the students I talk to say we, we prefer mushrooms because we grow them. Yeah. And so it turns out that in every state but three, you can buy a mushroom growing kit that includes uh, the spores of psilocybin. The spores of psilocybin are not illegal in most states. Turning them into mushrooms is illegal, but they're little grow kits. And I was just reading an article by a friend of mine named David Brown on mushroom growing kits, and it's fascinating. You know, I happen to live in one of the states where the spores are illegal, but I was thought, gee, wouldn't that be fun to just to allow the natural form of these, um, you know, in your backyard? That's illegal in California, the spores? Just to get, yeah, so it's, that's my understanding. Again, that's a very, uh, I haven't really... This is very recent, so I just read his article. I think yesterday. So I was just, I was getting excited there because I was like, my my girlfriend and I've been getting into gardening, and I was like, well, we got a new project. <laughs> well, also, if you already, you know, if you happen to know someone, we will not discuss present company who has mushrooms in the refrigerator. It's quite possible there are spores in there, but again, you, you're going to have to go to the mushroom growing books, not not to some um, some guy that talks a lot about them like me. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fadman. I greatly appreciated this, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun for me. Well, I'm really delighted with how we got together, and I very much appreciate that connection, and I hope that you give her my very best. I will. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care, man. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Um, if you enjoyed the show, do me three little itsy bitsy tiny favors one tell your friends about it tweet about it do something if you enjoyed this share it with somebody um you can write a review on itunes and say if you liked it on there that helps me also if you want to really help out you could donate a little bit of money on there on my feral audio page uh just a couple bucks if everybody who listened to my show gave me a couple bucks i wouldn't sweat rent every month because i sweat rent uh, and also Dustin Marshall, the brilliant man who puts Farrell together. He sacrifices a great deal of his life to put these shows out, and he uh, he really needs money more than me because he's that's his whole world is Farrell Audio, and so he lives off of what gets donated. We we share it, Dustin and I. And, uh, and if you can't afford to donate, you can go to the website. You can buy something through Amazon. We get a kickback of that. Uh, we get a little do-re-me from that, and that uh, that helps out. So go buy, you know, a movie with John Candy. Because, frankly, 70s and 80s, John Candy was the funniest dude there was. Sorry, everybody else. <laughs>
but John Candy wins. Also, check out some of the other shows on feralaudio.com. Check out uh, Duncan Trussell's Lavender Family Hour. He doesn't... Just a Duncan Trussell. For me. I mix up his two shows. Dontini. Johnny Pepperton's got a great show. Brody Stevens. Listen to him. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you're wonderful. government it is the mission of the national security agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security <laughs> the nsa has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary tapped incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the nsa now on feralaudio.com